Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's brand new, season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Internet Hate Machine. As always, I am joined by my lovely producer, Sophie. Sophie, thank you for being here. Happy to be here, as always, Bridget. How are you? I am, as I told you earlier, I kind of have the blahs. I'm not drinking for dry January, which is taking its toll, but I'm good. I'm good. How about you? I was telling Bridget off mic that I was like, I'm thinking about doing 30 days no dairy, but I don't know how I do that without cheese. And Bridget was like, cheese is one of the only purely good things that we have in this world. You can't give it up. And (laughs) I take that to heart. I'm like, you're you're so right. (laughs) We just don't have that many things that are just purely good in this world. We need to protect them, indulge them, respect them. I I appreciate that. So as you know, so far on this podcast, we have talked so much about things like harassment and abuse and those kinds of things happening on social media platforms that we know disproportionately impact marginalized people like Black women. So much so that Black women are sometimes called canaries in a coal mine when it comes to technology harms. Because, as I hope I've demonstrated in this podcast, first, something harmful online will happen to Black women. And those Black women speak up about it, and nobody with power really does anything to address it. And then that harmful thing online happens to more and more people, and then it just becomes a normalized thing that is everybody's problem. I have argued many, many times that I think that our digital media ecosystem is broken because lies and conspiracy theories and harassment are amplified and incentivized. But I want to be clear that it does not have to be this way. I firmly believe that something different is possible. In fact, many of the technologists, organizers, and activists who are doing the work of trying to build that better internet future come from the same marginalized backgrounds that are so often harmed online. But doing that critical work of making the internet safer comes at such a high cost for these folks, a high cost financially, professionally, and personally. And it shouldn't have to be this way. And I think that's really part of the problem. One of the reasons why this problem is such an ongoing, persistent one is because a lot of the people who are trying to make technology safer 
are at best ignored and at worst, like, actively punished for it. And until we change that aspect of our culture and technology, I don't think we're going to get anywhere. And a story of one of my favorite technologists, Ifoma Uzoma, I think illustrates exactly what I mean. So this episode is going to be a little bit different. Um, I want to tell you a bit about Ifoma and her story, and then we're going to hear from her in her own words. So let's get into it. I love a format switch up. Yeah, switching it up. I think it's it's great whenever you can hear somebody's story in their own words. Oh, it's it's like why I became a podcaster. Yeah. I feel like there's something, you know, you could read someone's op-ed or read someone's writing, but there's something about hearing someone tell their story and how they felt and where they were at in their own words. It just, I don't know, it it it, it hits to the quick a little a little better. I don't know. I completely agree. So Ifoma is a public policy expert and technologist. She worked at Google and also worked on anti-hate speech initiatives and community standards at Facebook before landing at the social media platform Pinterest in 2018, where she was one of the first hires on Pinterest's then newly formed public policy team. Uh, Sophie, do you, do you use Pinterest? Uh, no, but I definitely did, like, in 2013. I stopped really using it around then as well. Go back and look at some of the things that you pinned. Like if you were like, oh, my dream wedding board and just have a, a, oh, a, yeah, a cringe attack. I hate myself. I hate 2013 <laughs> me. 2013 me had the worst taste. It's yeah. If that's I hope that doesn't still exist. <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm sorry to say it might. <laughs> it stops, might. stops recording in scrubs. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I'm actually Googling if I have a Pinterest up still. Oh, man. I'm pretty sure it does exist still, but I don't think it's like there's much on there. I remember, There's like definitely like a 2013 photo of me that should not be on the Internet because it's atrocious haircut style. But, uh, you know. I had to go in and like wipe mine because back also that was the era of American apparel kind of like hipster stuff. I was definitely into that. So it was a lot of just really questionable fashion choices that I'm happy that to say that I deleted from the internet. Okay, so I have two I have nothing that I've created on Pinterest. I have two safe posts. One is a post that's like 25 ridiculously healthy foods and it's like a graphic. It's like cool, weird, problematic diet stuff. And then I have a quote that says, your flaws are perfect for the heart that is meant to love you. Oh, Sophie. And this amazing side bang situation, if you can see it. <laughs> is that you? Oh, my God. It's uh, a version of me. Oh, my God. I... I wish I could hear from that version of Sophie. I didn't know you I don't. then. I didn't, I didn't know side bang inspirational quote, Sophie. <laughs> oh, she did a smoky eye. Oh, incredible. I, I have like a John and uh, John and Kate plus eight haircut in this situation. Like it's like, I, I definitely didn't, but this crop is like not helping me. Ooh, boy. Oh, boy. Boy, howdy. What a time. Anyways, this is not about me. Pinterest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is such an interesting sort of digital time capsule of, of times gone by, I guess I'll say. Yeah. And so Ifoma, you know, she gets hired at Pinterest. And before that, she had been working at Facebook. And she describes the company culture of working at Facebook as very direct. She told Time Magazine about a time where she directly questioned Mark Zuckerberg 
about why he had not spoken up after the death of Heather Heyer in Charlottesville at an all-hands meeting. And Zuckerberg actually admitted in front of everybody that it was a mistake to not do so. And so she was like, oh, yeah, I came from this culture of, you know, directness that was tantamount at Facebook. So if the culture at Facebook was direct, at Pinterest, she found it was very, very different. Interesting. Yeah, it is. I I think, like, it's interesting because I think that Pinterest kind of had a, I guess, perhaps unearned reputation of being kind of a softer, cuddlier tech company. You know, nobody's going to mistake somebody like Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg for like a cuddly, nice guy running a cuddly, nice platform, right? We're all, it's clear the kind of platform that they're running and the kind of people they are. Can't even imagine Bezos giving somebody a hug. Oh, oh, I don't, I don't <laughs> want it. It seems like it would be very sharp. I wouldn't want it. Uh, but yeah, Pinterest had this reputation of being like a gentler, cuddlier, kind of a tech company that cares, for lack of a better phrase. Ifoma's job at Pinterest was working on the platform's policies to create safer and better online experiences for their users. She says that from her very first meetings at Pinterest, she could kind of tell the vibes were off. She told Time that in her very first meeting with senior leadership, she questioned the company's decision to keep InfoWars' Alex Jones on the platform and got pushback. She says, quote, the entire strategy was lay low. Don't weigh in on anything. And I was like, this is not controversial. This is someone who is harassing the parents of Sandy Hook. So, you know, wanting to kick somebody like Alex Jones off of a platform, that shouldn't have been controversial. And in fact, it's the the kind of thing that she is hired to do at Pinterest. I happen to know Ifoma. She is a get shit done type of woman. And so she does not lay low when it comes to her work. And therein kind of lies a little bit of the dilemma for women who are tasked with making technology and the internet safer. You might get praise for it publicly, but then be punished for it privately. And that's exactly what happened to her. I hate that. I know. It's not, it's not great. So listeners might actually know a little bit about Ifoma's work without necessarily like knowing it was hers or knowing her name. She spearheaded a lot of policies at Pinterest that earned the platform a lot of public praise and like really good press. While working at Pinterest, she ushered in the first real medical misinformation policy at a social media platform that included limiting vaccine misinformation and searches in, in 2019. Um, this came after a measles outbreak, which you might remember, that was really driven mm-hmm. by, you know, parents being like, oh, I'm not going to vaccinate my kid against the measles because it's trendy. And this was really important because Pinterest is the kind of platform that a lot of parents use. A lot of moms use it. It's where you might spend time if you're planning a wedding or setting up a nursery. 80% of mothers and 38% of fathers in the United States are on Pinterest, according to 2017 research. And unlike a platform like Twitter or Facebook, it's a platform where you might not be mentally prepared or primed to expect to encounter medical misinformation. So you're not really, like, you can be more susceptible to it. If you're just scrolling, you know, inspirational quotes and nursery ideas on Pinterest, you might not be expecting to encounter vaccine misinformation, and then your guard's going to be a little bit down. For sure. And it's a platform that skews heavily female, and we know that women are more likely to be the sort of medical decision makers in their households. And so them being targeted by misinformation on Pinterest is kind of a big deal. And so Pinterest coming out with this policy to ban medical misinformation was like, Kind of a a big deal in the misinformation space. 
This was also way before COVID was a thing. So becoming the first platform to proactively deal with medical misinformation, something that we know would become so important during COVID, was like a huge deal. Right. So like this was this was we saw this happen quite a lot and, you know, sometimes in a performative way, but also like in a good way during 2020 and 2021. But we're talking about what? This is 2017? This is 2019. 2019. Okay, so that's still, that's like very, I feel like that's very relevant that it was happening before 2020. I mean, having done a little bit of this work myself, when big platforms make a change like this, it can be the domino effect that has other platforms do the same. And so, you know, if, Reddit does something, it might create the conditions for other platforms to be like, oh, I kind of have to do it. And so Mm -hmm. Pinterest becoming pretty much the first platform to do this kind of was a big deal. And I think it I think it did create the conditions for other platforms to be like, oh, wait, this is something we have to take seriously. Okay, let's 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 figure it out. Yeah, that's very uh, before the times. Yeah. Thank you, Ifoma. So a lot of people probably associate Pinterest with planning weddings. And folks might recall that in 2019, Pinterest also announced that they were going to no longer allow plantations that used to house enslaved people to be listed as, you know, romantic wedding venues on the platform. That was also Ifoma's doing. She worked with Jade Magnus of the racial justice organization Color of Change to change this policy at Pinterest. That got so much good press. Like, wow, this company is like proactively banning slave plantations as a a place that you can describe as a romantic venue for a wedding. And it kind of created a new conversation around, you know, platforms and the responsibility they have to ethically talk about things like plantations. Yes, we know that uh, Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck were not using Pinterest. (sighs) (laughs) It's so wild to me that they got married, what, like a few months ago on a plantation. I don't understand it. Blake Lively, I'm like, okay, well... Maybe it's possible that if you're from the West Coast and before we were kind of having the, the, the national conversation about this, I'll allow that maybe you just never thought about it. Jennifer Lopez, I feel like has no excuse. I'm also looking at you, the Beavers. Did did they get married on a plantation? I'm oh, nodding. No. My, listeners, I am nodding my head in South Carolina. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. Just let me just du- hold on. Do let it. me double check my fact. Yeah, check let's on fact, that. Uh, fact check that one. I mean, I, I wouldn't know, but I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't put it past him. The first thing that pops up is plantation weddings will no longer be freely promoted on Pinterest. Thank you, Euphoma. Thank you, Euphoma. This article starts the idea that celebrities as prominent as Blake Lively or Justin Bieber would get, med- get married at a former concentration camp is particularly inconceivable. And yet, both Lively and Bieber have in fact chosen to get married at the sites of former forced labor camps in recent years. Yep. My insult stands. Yes, your insult stands. Um, so Ifoma basically was like a one-woman positive press shop for Pinterest. She got all of this positive press for making these progressive, proactive policy decisions and setting a good example for other platforms. But rather than being praised for this work that made the company look so great and so progressive and so cuddly and warm and yada, 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 and also added a lot of value to the company as it was preparing to go public, she was retaliated against for this work by her own colleagues. So. Here's where it starts to go down. Ifoma suggested that Pinterest start adding a content warning to posts made by right-wing grifter Ben Shapiro. I know. I I, can't even—I hate him so much. (laughs) At the time, y'all might remember that Shapiro was doing a lot of espousing of the 
great replacement conspiracy theory, which we know is a white supremacist conspiracy theory that posits that non-white lesser people are threatening the white majority with the help of globalists and elitists, i.e. Jewish people. Uh, And so Ifoma suggested that these posts from Ben Shapiro get a content warning on Pinterest. When she suggested this, one of her colleagues at Pinterest, who was a software developer, doxed her, shared her full name, her cell phone number, her email address, and her picture with Project Veritas, which led to her personal information being published on 8chan and 4chan, which we already know, you know, like sites full of extremists and abusers and bad actors who already had roles in harassing women like Adria Richards, who we've already talked about on the pod. I was going to say, i.e. Donglegate. Exactly. Um, She gets death threats, rape threats, and she was terrified. Ifoma starts keeping a gun, and eventually she had to move because the harassment got so bad. By her own fucking colleagues, first. Like, like I... Her own fucking colleagues. Also, it's like the to hear that like Ben Shapiro like infiltrated Pinterest is so wild to me. Like that, just like that as like a concept is, it just like doesn't comprehend in my brain. Yeah, I I get what you mean, and I think it it really speaks to the way that misinformation and conspiracy theories work these days. Where again, if you're just if you're just pinning pictures of recipes and meal planning ideas and flowers or whatever on Pinterest, you might not be expecting to encounter this kind of harmful, anti-Semitic, racist conspiracy theory. But oftentimes on those platforms, these kind of dangerous conspiracy theories can be dressed up intentionally to target women. So you might be just like looking for nursery ideas or looking for ideas on how to can your own vegetables. Next thing you know, you're 10 pins deep into like Great replacement trad wife incel manosphere bullshit, and that, I think that's that's kind of how we're seeing a lot of these conspiracy theories spread online today in these in these very unlikely corners of the internet. Bean Dad, the dress, thirty to fifty feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. Oldest girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by oldest girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So when Ifoma reported what her coworker had done, rather than investigating whether or not, you know, one of their employees had actually jeopardized the safety of another employee, Ifoma says that Pinterest instead wanted to investigate whether or not Ben Shapiro was actually indeed a white supremacist. She told the Washington Post, quote, instead of focusing on security and making sure that we were fine and validating the concerns that we had, their concern was, is what you said valid? Almost like the employee had a legitimate reason to share my personal information all over the internet. Pinterest did not help Ifoma get the information removed, nor did they ever punish the employee who was responsible for doxing her and spreading her information on the internet. Now I'm glad I haven't used this since 2013 because that sucks. Yeah, it's awful. So separate from all of this, Ifoma had lodged a pay discrimination complaint while working at Pinterest. She had been doing all of this groundbreaking work, but she had been hired at a much more junior role than she should have been compared to the workload that she actually had. Uh, She says that she was doing the same work as her manager. Ifoma was a good performer during her time at Pinterest. Like, all of her performance reviews are stellar. She earned two raises and a promotion during her two-year span at the company. But none of this addressed the fact that she had been hired initially at the wrong level, which means that she is losing thousands of dollars in stock options just because of the, like, particularities of compensation packages at tech companies. She's still getting these great marks with the company, but when she starts pushing for fair pay— even going so far as pursuing it with a lawyer, the company starts to further alienate her. Like during a performance review, while she was talking about her work getting platforms to stop promoting slave plantations as wedding venues, her manager said that Ifoma should have provided the pros of promoting slave plantations as well as the cons. Honey, what? Yeah, like, what are the pros to continuing to have these on your platform? I would say none. It's awful. And honestly, if you think that's bad, during our conversation that you'll hear in a moment, Ifoma actually dropped another little nugget of something that she found out about this particular manager that will make it all make sense. So if you think that's bad, listen to that conversation because it gets a lot worse. Uh, What? Is this person that? Like, what? Yeah. So basically just both sizing slavery. Yeah, I'm sorry. Like, read the Read the root? What are, do you, think about what you're saying before you say it. 
this person should not be anybody's manager. That is so dangerous and harmful. Exactly. So in May of 2020, Ifoma quits Pinterest. She gets six months severance. And honestly, that might have been the end of it, right? Like she talks about how she like wanted things to be professional. She really was loyal to the company. Until summer of 2020, during the racial justice uprisings in the wake of the death of George Floyd. Now, I remember this time because it was like, <laughs> it just was like a weird time where, do you remember like people would put their Black Lives Matter posts up and it would be like, well, actually, you're racist. <laughs> or like, actually, uh, you said this to me. Like, it was like a time where uh, it was like, the Black Square you, days. <laughs> yeah. Before you post your Black Square, really make sure that your own house is in order. Like, who was the woman from Glee who was like, I stand with Black Lives was Matter. It, was it Leah Michelle? It was Leah Michelle. Yeah, and then she's her, problematic as shit. Amber Riley, her Black Glee classmate, was like, oh, Leah Michelle, Black Lives Matter. Did Black Lives Matter when you called me a black bitch and told everybody you were going to shit in my wig when we were on set? Oh, God, yeah. It just, it's, it, uh, like during Pride Month when you're like, Burger King, what are you doing? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Burger King stands with the queer community. <laughs> You're like, uh, can I have my Whopper? You're making me uncomfortable. <laughs> so, so Pinterest funny. puts up a statement in support of Black Lives Matter. They say, with everything we do, we will make it clear that our Black employees matter. And Ifoma calls she them roast out. Them? Did she roast them? She oh, roasts them. That's so cool. So she tweets, I recently decided to leave Pinterest, which has just declared solidarity with Black Lives Matter. What a joke. As a Black woman, seeing Pinterest's middle-of-the-night Black Employees Matter statement made me scratch my head after I just fought for a full year to be paid and leveled fairly, a year in which I was, A, doxxed by a white male colleague, he shared my cell phone number, photo, and name with violently racist and misogynistic parts of the internet, followed up by a dangerously inadequate response from Pinterest, B, continued to serve as the leader of and spokesperson for Pinterest's biggest public policy wins, see scores of interviews and articles on addressing health misinformation, emotional well-being, stopping the promotion of plantation wedding venues, C, kept all of the above quiet for professionalism and in the hope that Pinterest would do the right thing. Instead, they doubled down on retaliation. Now Pinterest is claiming to be listening and acting mere weeks after replacing me and another Black woman colleague who also decided to leave with... You guessed it, probably a white person. I am so proud of the initiatives that I led during my time here. Addressing health misinfo decisively is no longer novel thanks to that work. I just wish it wasn't sullied by the racism, gaslighting, and disrespect from my manager and the company's legal and HR leadership. Racism is dehumanizing and exhausting. I busted my ass at Yale, Google, then Facebook before Pinterest recruited me as the second hire on the global public policy team. I led work that raised our public policy profile globally. It didn't matter because I'm a Black woman. I've seen examples of genuine contrition, even reparation this past week from others. I hope Pinterest take this opportunity to express not only their solidarity, but also follows through on their commitment and taking action. Sharing this is scary, especially after being doxxed and knowing the many forms that retaliation can take. I owe it to myself and Black colleagues still there to hold the company to the commitments it's made. Pinterest. Black employees do indeed matter. Pay us fairly. Period. Period spelled out and then appear and then an actual punctuation. Period. Period. Uh, So her tweets go hella viral. This is when she was first on my radar. I was like, oh my God, who is this like, who is this like amazing woman calling out this company publicly and like demanding accountability? 
So cool. So cool. So staffers at Pinterest, they hold a walkout in support of EFOMA. And EFOMA was taking a huge risk. Oh, did risk. she have an NDA? She had an NDA. So she's taking yeah, yeah. a huge risk in speaking up. So when she tweeted about her experience, she was breaking an NDA. Uh, and so Pinterest could have pursued legal action or sued her for speaking up about her experience at the company. That's because of a loophole in the law. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Discrim- there's, a, there's a discrimination loophole. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So you are allowed to break an NDA if you are experiencing gender-based harassment or discrimination, but not racial harassment or discrimination. And that's because the Stand Act, which is the Stand Together Against Non-Disclosure Act, which passed in 2018 in response to the Me Too movement, nullified NDAs in cases of sexual harassment, assault, or discrimination. I have to be honest, it's like one of those things where like as powerful as Me Too was, a lot of the legislation and stuff that was championed and came out of that movement was not always done with, like, an intersectional framework. And so since Ifoma was alleging that she was treated unfairly because of her race, not specifically her gender, she could not legally break her mm-hmm. NDA. And she was taking this big risk in speaking about what she experienced. And in doing so, she became a whistleblower. Her speaking up alerted shareholders, other employees, and the public to what was found to be rampant gender and racial discrimination at Pinterest. Uh, There was an investigation into the workplace culture at Pinterest, and the findings were not good. After all of this became public, Pinterest had to settle a lawsuit with their shareholders, who sued the company, saying that executives had breached their fiduciary duty by perpetuating or knowingly ignoring the long-standing and systemic culture of discrimination and retaliation at Pinterest. Separately to all this, after Ifoma and another Black staffer at Pinterest started speaking up about the discrimination that they faced at the company, a white woman who had formerly been the company's COO named Francois Broher also filed a gender discrimination lawsuit against the company, and she won. Pinterest had to pay her a record $22.5 million settlement, uh, which was the largest known settlement for gender discrimination in U.S. history, with $2.5 million of that being earmarked to commit to nonprofits that support underrepresented and marginalized groups in technology. Francois Braher said that Ifoma and the other Black staffer at Pinterest, Erica, speaking up is what inspired her to do this, which honestly is, like, great for her, but... Francois Brauer was already a millionaire before coming to work at Pinterest, and she got $20 million when she spoke up and filed this discrimination lawsuit. Ifoma got almost nothing. She got six-month severance and, like, punished for doing her job. And so Ifoma really did something that we see so often when it comes to Black women and technology. She used this horrible personal experience to make things better for everyone, not just for Black women, not just for herself, but everyone, all of us. She drafted and worked to successfully pass the Silenced No More Act, new legislation in California that makes it illegal for companies to bar employees from speaking out about harassment and discrimination. And that actually became law in 2022 in California. So thank you, Ifoma. This was also around the time when a lot of other tech whistleblowers were speaking up, like Frances Haugen and Sophie Mm -hmm. Zong, speaking up about the harms that they witnessed at tech companies. Ifoma published the Tech Worker Handbook, which is a free online resource for folks who are thinking about becoming whistleblowers at tech companies. It's not meant to encourage people to be whistleblowers, but it's just a, like, fact-based, step-by-step guide of, like, yo, if you're going to blow the whistle at some harm that you're seeing at your tech company, here's all the considerations that you should take. Here's how you should do it safely so that you're not being tracked. And here's what you need to know before you do it. 
To date, IFOMA has successfully gotten companies to adopt policies or language that allow workers to speak up about discrimination, even if they have signed NDAs, which will ultimately, I think, make everyone safer because everything in technology is better when people are not beholden to stay quiet about harms or wrongdoing that they have witnessed within these companies. And so I think IFOMA's story is one that really helps us understand, I think, one, one of the reasons why this problem will not get better until we have massive culture shift in technology. I think that we need to really rethink who has the power in tech, who we center, whose experiences we center in value in technology. And I don't think until we do that, and I, or until people like Ufoma who, you know, speak out and try to make things safer and better are welcomed instead of being ignored, isolated, alienated, and punished. So with that... Let's hear from Afoma in her own words. Thank you, Afoma. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, to live and die in LA. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
My full name is Ifoma Ozoma, and I'm the founder and principal of the consulting firm I started. That's called Earthseed, uh, which is actually named after the community that Octavia Butler created in Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talent. So, love that. Love Butler's work. Really yep. having extra um, extra meaning yep. <laughs> the last exactly. few years. So I would love to start by talking about some of your work um, at Pinterest. You know, before before things went south, it sounds like you had a lot of really great wins there. Tell me, tell me a little bit about how you came to be working there. It, it, so it's even crazier because as things were going south, I was still doing the work. But I'll, I'll back up and start at the beginning. Um, my entire career before starting my own consulting firm has been intact, starting in DC uh, at Google, uh, working on public policy and public affairs work, primarily with elected officials at the federal level uh, and a few at the state level. And then after that, I moved to Google and or uh, to Facebook in California. And there I was doing a lot of international work around hate speech and programs that we ran with uh, civic institutions. And that's where I started getting more exposed to content moderation and to uh, particularly hate speech, but uh, how content moderation worked at the international level and in the international context, especially when companies based in California are making those decisions and the disparate impacts that exist when that's the case. And then I was recruited to Pinterest to be the second person on the public policy team there. And my first week on the job, uh, I pushed our GC and our trust and safety team and uh, the content policy team to make the decision that we ended up making on Alex Jones and removing him entirely from the platform at a time. This was in 2018 at a time when he was not really being addressed by any platform. And the argument I made at that point um, was first that he already violated a lot of the policies that we had, his content. Um, and two important things. One, that if you're acting on misinformation, at that point, no other platform had a misinformation policy other than like Medium. And my point was, well, if we're making decisions because we know content is misinforming, we have a misinformation policy. We need to just write it and be clear and stand in our convictions and post it on the site. A few researchers will pick it up. Others may pick it up. Most people won't, but I do think when you're making decisions, you need to be transparent about what those decisions are and why. And so from there and the policy that came out of that, then I was able to push um, for a lot of the health misinformation work that I did, which started with uh, getting a landscape analysis. That's something that I feel has been missing from a lot of platforms. If you don't know what's on your platform and others don't know, how do you address it properly? If you don't know who it's impacting, because most misinformation is not an equal opportunity harm. It's mostly targeted at people of color and at women. And when you're looking at health misinformation, it's especially stark. And so having that information, I was then um, able to push for things that I was retaliated against because of. Uh, but that's a whole other set of stories. <laughs> I've been working in the misinformation space for a while, and you're exactly right that so few platforms had any, had any kind of public-facing policy around it. And so Pinterest was able to really position themselves, at least from, from my perspective as an outsider at that point, as 
a leader in this space who could walk with conviction. I deep down, I think I knew it was, there was, you know, there was probably a black woman leading this work somewhere, but they were really able to enjoy this public persona as a company with a little bit of backbone and, and was going to take responsibility. And yet, while enjoying the, you know, the, while enjoying that reputation, they were internally making your life harder at, at Pinterest for that work that they were getting so much acclaim from folks like me from the outside for. Like, how, how does that sit? How are you able to sit with that? Um, with a lot of peace that karma is real, um, and it will come back to get them. But, but also, that was one of the reasons why I had to go public about the retaliation that I faced when I raised pay discrimination concerns about the doxing that I experienced from a white male supremacist who happened to also work at Pinterest after uh, I pushed for decisions to be made around uh, white supremacist content that had existed on the platform. Uh, There are a lot of intersections, as you know, with misinformation. And so even though Pinterest was most well known because of the health misinformation work that I did, we took a lot of steps to address other types of misinformation and where uh, those two, I guess, circles and a Venn diagram met was on an anti-choice site that had been posting misinformation around uh, birth control and access to abortion services being targeted specifically at Black communities to uh, push a eugenics agenda from the pro-choice movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, just And the ways in which the misinformation aligned, uh, I pushed internally that like this is, this is why we have to look at misinformation in general. We have to look at the specific ways in which it ad- it harms people. But if you just take a, well, this is an opinion point of view, then you're missing that this is both health misinformation and it's also political because it's targeted at a group using language and using imagery because they're very good at using images of black mothers and black children on these websites that are run entirely by white supremacists that you may miss some of the context if you only look at the content and not what their entire website is pushing. That's a really good point. And I think it's a point that we miss about how misinformation works, you know, especially on a platform like Pinterest that is so visual you might be on Pinterest just looking to like, you know, looking for inspiration for your new baby nursery or something. You might, you're, you not, you're, you users might not really think that they're in a space where they're going to be, you know, encountering this kind of charged, you know, racially charged, racist, sexist imagery that's meant to mislead them about their health, right? You, you might be just like using it casually because you're looking for, for pretty pictures. And I think that's so that's so key that people's guards are down oftentimes when they're on sites like Pinterest. So they don't even realize like, oh, I'm actually being I'm actually consuming content specifically meant to to lead me astray and misinform me. And that's why it was particularly harmful. And that was my even though the platform had never really done anything public in the policy space, was certainly not known by any of the reporters I ended up um, working with about policy decisions. One of the reasons why I felt so strongly about this 
is it's a platform that was uh, going towards IPO at the time that I had started. So I started pre-IPO. And part of the messaging around that is we're a platform with eight and 10 moms in the US on here. Lots of women use uh, the platform around the world and women are often decision makers when it comes to financial choices for their households. So it's a great platform for advertisers, but at the same time, that's what made it a prime target for misinformation purveyors because you have a captive audience, folks who are not attuned to looking for mis and disinformation because they're not on Facebook, they're not on Twitter, they're in a place that feels uh, safe to them. Mm -hmm. And so they're the perfect opportunity to then hawk whatever goods you're selling. Uh, A point that I made often because I'd get invited by the WHO, CDC, and others to talk about this health misinformation work um, that they had not thought about as much is the financial incentives that are tied to a lot of misinformation. Uh, Whether it's Alex Jones selling his nonsense t-shirts and supplements and whatever else, these people are scam artists. That's their number, their number one job is scamming folks. They use the values that people have. They use the fears that people have to then sell their products. But at the end of the day, these are spammers and scammers. And so you need to also be looking at what it is that they're trying to push on your platform. For almost every single health misinformation site, they were selling supplements. So if you would address dangerous supplements on the platform as spam, why would you not consider this at the same level of harm to the platform and ultimately harm to legitimate advertisers? That's a really good point. I had no, I mean, it makes so much sense. I think that we're so used to thinking about scammers as people, you know, selling fake Gucci on the street and like, no, it can, it, it, people can, can scam online and they're misleading you in order to, to get you to buy whatever bullshit product they're hawking. I would actually argue that the person selling the Gucci handbag that's fake, that's not harmful. You get a cheaper bag. If it's made well, it looks pretty good. Like you get a deal, they get a deal. Gucci doesn't get a deal, but what do they need one for? Um, But that's not harmful in the same way that telling parents, and especially at the point at which most parents make decisions about vaccines uh, in the last trimester before they have the kid, that they, instead of getting a vaccine for their child, which will save their child's life, they should instead go buy your vitamin K supplement. That is so harmful and dangerous in a way that we need to take it more seriously. It's not a difference of opinion. It's actually costing people's lives. Definitely. And I think to your point about how many moms are on the platform, you know, as we go into talking about, you know, vaccine rollout for COVID and things like that, it is a lot of times moms who are making health decisions for the family. And so if moms are being inundated with uh, really harmful health misinformation on this platform where they think they're going to be safe, it is a real problem that could could have a real human cost. And I think, yeah, the person scamming fake Gucci belt on the street other than not giving Gucci more money, which frankly, I'm not really that mad at, you know, we have to look at the, the kind of harm that these platforms can really be responsible for pushing on communities who are oftentimes already marginalized or underrepresented. That's exactly right. So I want to switch gears a little bit. So a thing in technology that is so frustrating is marginalized people being punished for speaking honestly and accurately about things like hate and extremism. 
And I feel like we're never going to get anywhere in addressing this if folks are not even allowed to speak honestly about it without consequences. A perfect example is, you know, what happened at GitHub around January 6th. So folks might recall that during the January 6th insurrection, a Jewish staffer who worked at the tech company GitHub watched it all unfold on television like we all did. And he saw these insurrectionists storming the Capitol, some of whom were objectively holding Nazi flags. So he posted a message in Slack warning his coworkers to stay safe. He wrote like, stay safe, there's Nazis about. And GitHub fired him for this. Now, eventually the company apologized and all of that, but you've spoken with dealing with a very similar kind of thing, where you spoke honestly and openly about hate and extremism within technology, and you were punished for it. Yeah, and not only punished, I was personally targeted. So the story I was referring to earlier, the white supremacist colleague who um, wasn't someone I worked with closely, but worked on uh, the engineering side of trust and safety, uh, saw a message that I posted in exactly the right place for me to post it. It wasn't a general conversation area, but I posted that a pretty uh, popular white supremacist was, in fact, a white supremacist. I linked to the content that violated our policies that was of concern. And then I put in a note as well that uh, the platform or the folks working on trust and safety should be mindful of these terms. Like, here's a set of terms that are dog whistles unless you're a white supremacist or unless you're the target of the white supremacist harm. And these are what we need to look out for because these folks aren't going to title their videos on YouTube as, hey, I'm a white supremacist and this is my view. It's going to say something about uh, population control mm -hmm. around uh, white replacement theory, which a lot of folks are not aware of, but is a huge red flag and is a calling card for many white supremacists. Uh, a few months after posting that warning, sharing the context and the content, which was my job as a public policy person who helped inform content safety decisions that we made, I was then um, doxxed. This person doxxed me and two other women, another one who was a black woman and a woman uh, that he, a white woman he assumed to be a lesbian. Um, and we only know that because of the comments that came up on Gateway Pundit and in other places where we had been targeted. And for me, I guess he took a particular disliking to me and so shared uh, my phone number as well. And all of the identifying information that you would need to find me. Oh uh, at this point, I had already, separate from all of this and separate from the work I was doing, I had already raised pay discrimination complaints with uh, the appropriate leadership at the company, my manager, manager's manager, HR, et cetera, and was getting serious pushback from them. And so then when I was doxxed, the lack of response from them to take care of my safety, to address what was going on was so apparently part of the retaliation that I had already been facing on the pay discrimination side uh, that it was pretty traumatizing being at a company where it was clear I was not safe. I was not necessarily safe at home because it's not very difficult to track someone down once you have enough information. Uh, and then was also dealing with everything else at the same time. So uh, I really related to the GitHub uh, story because of the doxing that I experienced and the lack of response from the company. But then also later on that same year, 
uh, color of change had come to me because I was the liaison with outside groups, academics and civil society on content safety issues. They had come to me sharing that uh, they were still seeing slave plantations pop up as wedding venues and suggestions for weddings. If you know Pinterest or you know someone who uses it, the number one use of the platform might be planning a wedding or preparing for some sort of celebration. And uh, I agreed with them. It's completely inappropriate that the platform would be pushing concentration camps, which is what they were, uh, and torture sites as a celebration venue. And so I brought it to our content safety team with my recommendation, shared exactly what Color of Change had shared with me. And then I got pushback from the head of that team, particularly the head of uh, content policy, who happens to still be there and still speaking on behalf of the company. Um, What I later found out was that she was married on a plantation that she never shared that in all of the pushback that I got, but she ended up working with my manager who had already been retaliating against me uh, to ding me on my performance review. So even though Pinterest ended up doing exactly what I recommended, ended up getting praised in 40 plus headlines because of the decision to stop promoting slave plantations and the decisions that I had pushed to be made, I was dinged on my performance review, which affected my pay. Wow. First of all, uh, <laughs> the the reveal that this woman had her own, I mean, yikes. The, the levels. Her own, like the yeah. levels. The levels. Like, just like what you said, right? These companies get to enjoy the positive press that makes them look like a woke company or a company that really cares. Like I heard so many times people say, oh, Pinterest is a company that has a, you know, a, a, like they are a company that prizes like empathy, yada, yada, yada. And then to hear the inner workings of how this happened is so it's such a disconnect, I feel. It really is, you know, it, it really illustrates how so many different levels can come together to suppress and push out and harm a black woman for doing her job right like this was your job it's not like it's not like you were overstepping bounds this is what you were hired to do and I also think this you know and this is a conversation that I feel comes up again and again and again where black women are punished for like doing the right thing, for practicing public courage, public morality, for doing their jobs, trying to make things safer or better. Someone else gets to enjoy the the benefits of that work, but that work is at best, you know, unappreciated, underappreciated, at worst, dangerous and risky for your own personal safety, right? Like you, like you did this work of making Pinterest a safer, better platform at great personal cost and at great risk to your own like safe safety. Yep. And and all of those things happen. Not only was I paid uh, unfairly and I had to pursue legal action because of that, I was then also my life was threatened. So yeah, I got all of it while I was there. And people often like to call black women uh, canaries in the coal mine or whatever term they want to use. But I would like to just do my job, get paid fairly and not be put in danger for, (laughs) for doing the right thing for a company. I mean, uh, something like half more than half 
of the articles that were written about Pinterest uh, in the month before the public offering, which happened in April of 2019, referenced my work. So not only did my work have value to the actual users of the platform, end up pushing Facebook and others to have to respond about why they weren't addressing health misinformation, particularly around vaccines. And remember, that was during a different health issue, a measles outbreak, Mm -hmm. measles outbreaks on the East and West Coast. Uh, So not only did it have that sort of impact, which is a slam dunk if you're in a policy space, but it also had material benefit to the company in the form of the IPO. And I still was not treated fairly. Yeah. And the company still hasn't actually acknowledged that anything they did in my case was wrong. I mean, what is that like for you? Like, you you seem like someone who, and maybe this is just my, you know, we're talking over Squadcast, you know, uh, you seem like someone who has a lot of peace for how horribly you were treated. And I just, I, I, I have to, like, how, like I've had a lot out. of rage. I've had a lot of rage as well. You know, I, I really do believe in karma. And I believe it's not just you, it'll be the next seven generations that are hit with whatever evil you put out into the world. And so I take the long view. I'm like Arya from Game of Thrones. I have a list. I'm making my way through the list. But you'll get yours eventually. That's, that's my long view. And then also, I'm a student of history and political science. None of this is new. What I'm dealing with is not new. It's not uh, unique to my situation. Does it suck? Yes. Has it been miserable? Yes. I've paid physical consequences for it because my actual health was impaired for the two plus years I was in a legal fight with them. But like, I'm good at the end of the day. I'm at peace with every single decision I've made. I've never lied about what I experienced there. And so when they're out here lying about what they did to me um, and getting called out on lies, that is enough for me. Wow. And then I have to add, you know, reading that a former Pinterest COO, a white woman was able to get, what was it, a $20 million uh, discrimination uh payout from Pinterest. Um, And she explicitly said you and your other black woman colleagues speaking up about what you experienced at Pinterest. That was a big part of why she felt she was able to get this to get to get this settlement. And, you know, and you, if I remember correctly, like didn't even get a year of severance from Pinterest. That's correct. And laid the groundwork. She was not going to speak up publicly. And actually in the medium post where she didn't reference us when she first went public. Um, but she herself said that women had come to her over the course of her career and she actually had not been a helpful ally to other women. So I think she said everything. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, what was crazy about that situation is people got to see in real time what it means to lead a movement and then be left out of whatever progress comes. And black women are often, I mean, when you think about Me Too, who has Me Too actually benefited if not white women? Maybe, maybe in a sense, all women, but it is most benefited white women. And yet it was started by Tarana Burke, a black woman. So this is not, it's not new. It's not, I didn't speak up because I expected them to do the right thing. I, I 
from the jump expected them not. I expected them to denigrate my name, uh, my experience, which they've done all of that, uh, and then not to pay me what they owe me. But seeing it all happen in front of everyone, I think was a lesson, not only for the folks who were watching it and just expecting that the right thing would happen, but then also some of the reporters who worked on the story and were the very first ones to reach out and be like, how is it possible that you, like, I literally remember talking to you and then talking to her several months later you are the reason why she came forward. You are the reason why she had a strong case. And then this happens. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right that for better or for worse, it always seems that black women, we are the ones build, like we are the ones building and then other people are the ones who are benefiting. And I think I see that in politics. I see that in tech. I see that in so many different, it just seems to be, you know, I, I at this point, it almost, you know, it is what it is. But like it, that seems to be our lot on this on this earth, like building things that we then don't get to to use ourselves. Right. Like, I, I think it was um, this writer, Clarissa Brooks, who once wrote, like, I as a black woman, I don't want my back to be used as a bridge to a world I'll, I'll never see. Right. It's like, I feel right. like I feel like that is our lot. And I see it sp- particularly in tech, but in so many different different avenues. Yep. And that's why even though uh, this was painful, personally painful, of course, to have been the one who experienced all of this and then have someone else benefit from it, it was instructive for everyone to see it and to see the timeline and how quickly and the different way in which they responded to her. And then also, I think it was a helpful uh, lesson for people who considered themselves allies to see as well. Because there are a lot of people who think of themselves as allies who saw it and were like, wait, what? How is it possible that this is happening? This happens all of the time. You just don't usually see the dollar amount that's attached to the progress that certain people get and others do not. Absolutely. You know, kind of of connected to that, that idea, you know, when we're thinking about how to combat some of the more harmful things that Black women and other underrepresented communities face online, disinformation, misinformation, online harassment. I do have this feeling that there is this underlying assumption that Black women, like like tech and the internet and all of these domains, are it's like not our rightful domain. So we should not, we are not able to expect experiences that are not harmful in these spaces. And I think for me, it's kind of this vicious cycle where that dynamic is mirrored at tech companies. And so black women engineers, black women technologists are, be, are pushed out of these companies, are, are, not, are, are not being listened to. And thus these platforms are not able to, to, to prioritize our safety. So it's like, I feel like we, in my mind, we'll never address the true harm that platforms have been responsible for if, if these tech companies cannot figure out a way to really have black women be meaningfully centered and heard because it just seems like a, this like horrible cycle. I'm not sure if this makes any sense, but, um, no, it makes complete sense. And it's not a lack of figuring it out. It's a lack of desire. The, I I said to, I think it was Charlie Warzel wrote a column a few months ago about Facebook and it maybe being a lost cause. And I said, 
platforms reflect the people who lead them. That you're only seeing on Facebook, on Twitter, on Pinterest, wherever, what the people who lead those platforms want you to see. And so if they're operating in a white supremacist structure and worldview, and that is where their actual interests align, that's what we're going to see on the platform. So none of this is by accident. None of this is all of a sudden out of control. This is exactly what they designed working in the ways that they want it to work. Yeah, it always comes down to that question of, is it a they can't problem or are they, they won't, they don't want to problem. And I think we really, if anything, your situation really reflects what the answer might be. It's like they could, they just don't want to. This is, this is you know, they've made these choices. They've, they've made choices about who and what to prioritize and who and what to, you know, suppress and shut down and not prioritize. And the example I, it makes, usually the audiences that I give this or share this analogy with are health-focused, public health professionals, experts, et cetera. And I say, if you want to understand how non-accidental any of this is, think about pornography. How often do you randomly encounter porn on Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or wherever else? Not that often. Not often. It's not often. Not often. And yet you see misinformation every other post. You see hate every other post. There's a financial reason for that. Advertisers have said they don't want pornography next to their content. And so what have platforms done? Poured every single resource into making sure that's the case. They've made a choice here, and the choice is not on the side of safety. I would argue that if it's legal, consenting, adult pornography, that is way less harmful to randomly encounter on a platform than health misinformation or Nazi content. Right. I mean, this is such a silly example, but for the longest time on Instagram, and maybe it's still a case, if you showed your nipples on Instagram or like if you were breastfeeding on Instagram, there was a woman who had a picture of of her butt where she had her period on Instagram and that was removed, but they were not removing, you know, they were very diligent about removing this stuff, but also not removing like disinformation or like violent content or like hate speech, you know, it really, it really, you have to ask some questions about priorities. You really do. Yep. And the priorities are clear in all of our experiences on these platforms. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think just as like, you know, black women on the internet, I think that I believe that we have come to expect that our experiences with technology and online will not be safe. And I, I want to get to a place where we can radically rethink that radically rethink what our experiences on these platforms should, should be like, and can be like, I think that we need to, Really do. I would love to see some like radical rethinking about what we can expect from our internet experiences. I agree. And that's the basis of all of the work that I have done, the work that I'm doing now um, through my consulting firm on tech accountability, whether it's in the health misinformation space or whether it's on the organizing side and providing protections for whistleblowers. Um, and I think it it's a conversation that it's unfortunate that we have to bear the burden of since we're the people who are harmed by it. But uh, even just a few days ago, I was part of a conversation on Clubhouse um, around content moderation and around the decisions that platforms made to deplatform Donald Trump. And before we went into that conversation, I sent a note to everyone on the panel saying, Clubhouse is a place that I am not 
frequenting by choice because black women are often targeted and people use very loud dog whistles, basically just short of using the N word and using straight up misogynistic language. But there's a ton of that going on. And I put the onus on everyone on the panel to if that happened in the course of our conversation from anyone from the audience to not make it be my responsibility to be the only one to say something. And every single one was was great and said, absolutely, of course. But that should be the way that we're setting up conversations. It shouldn't be the responsibility of the person who is most likely to be harmed to say like, hey, I hate to be the one to bring the mood down, but this could happen. So can we please watch out for it? God, I have been that person a thousand times. And it's kind of like what you were saying. It just sucks. Like you, you want to you wanna do your job and be paid what you're owed for doing that work. I feel that Black women are just not often afforded the ability to just do your work and keep your head down. It's like you have to take on all this often unpaid, might I add, extra labor, extra energy, extra everything just to exist and do your job and put your message out there. Really... It is exhausting. I know exactly that that feeling of like, oh God, I'm gonna be have to have to be the person that raises this again, and like everyone's gonna groan. I I just know that feeling, and it it sucks. Yeah, it does. (laughs) Sucks. So I have one last question for you. What do you think platforms or policy policy folks or any anybody who has power, decision makers, what should folks be doing to keep dis and misinformation off of platforms? Well, um, I think the first step is on the platform side, having people who are empowered, not just there, um, who are also knowledgeable about the ways that dis and misinformation uh, target specific communities, the ways that it's showing up uh, differently on each platform, because these folks recycle a lot of content but they know what content works best and on which platform. And so the platforms also have to be aware of the ways in which their platforms are being used. Uh, On the policy side, I think it's great that the administration is uh, passing the bar that was on the ground from the Trump administration for diversity. And so at least they've cleared that (laughs) low bar and standard, but I am not seeing enough um, Black women in positions of leadership when it comes to misinformation and tech policy specifically. Um, I was encouraged by the science. I, I think it's some sort of science-focused department within the administration that was announced recently that Alondra Mm -hmm. Nelson will be on. That's incredible. Uh, But on the tech side, it cannot just be pulling the expertise of people like Eric Schmidt and other white tech executives Mm -hmm. to then reform the same industry that they've made billions off of. Like, that's just not how it works. That's not how it should work. Um, and I and I think it's important to pull academics, but you also need practitioners who have experienced things on the inside of these platforms to be informing the decisions and any regulation or reform that comes as a result. Mm, definitely. I actually do have one last question for you. I, I know I said I have yeah. my last one, <laughs> but, you know, we've talked a lot about, you know, Black women's experiences in tech. 
I'm sure that you know this. I know this just from, from doing the work. So much of the infrastructure of what we rely on to make the internet safer and better. So pe- people who are fighting disinformation and misinformation have been for a long time. So much of that in- infrastructure is Black women. What is it like to know that we have such a big role in doing a lot of the work that is making the internet safer and better for everybody? Uh, I mean, I it's tough because on the one hand, when we when progress is made that we push for everyone benefits um, and often we benefit the least. And Mm -hmm. so it is it's just a role that many black women have taken on uh, to protect themselves and uh, our communities. On the other hand, I don't blame any black women who are like, you know what, this is not my fight. This is not my battle. I'm tired. I'm just trying to live during a pandemic. I'm trying to feed my kids. I'm trying to feed myself. I'm trying to take a damn nap. Like I ascribe wholeheartedly to the nap ministry and the work that the nap ministry has been doing, because I think sometimes we have to say, you know what, I told you so now I'm going to rest. (laughs) That's it. I'm done. (laughs) I'm done. I'm bowing out. And so I allow the space for that at any point while also hoping that when Black women say, you know what, this is work that I want to do, that we're uplifted and we're empowered. The flip side of that is making sure that uh, allies or supposed allies are not then saying, oh my gosh, you're so good at this. You need to be the one leading it. No, no. Uh, After uh, the 5th, And the results in Georgia, when everyone is posting about, and not Black women, because Black women were not doing this, but when everyone else was posting about what Stacey Abrams needs to be doing, no. If she wants to go to a spa for the next month, for the next decade, that is her decision, and that's what she should be empowered to do. And those same people trying to demand labor of her should donate so that she can have her spa time for as long as she wants. Like That is the kind of allyship that I want to see, not just finding new work for us to do when we're the only ones paying the price for the work. Internet Hate Machine is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, check out our website, coolzonemedia.com, or find us on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., 
And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.